Again, the word of the Lord came to me, and the me is Ezekiel. He's a, a prophet in Israel. And it says, this son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them amongst the nations, and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and actions. Say conduct and actions. Conduct and actions. It's really important to hold on to that. Because in the midst of all this punishment and wrath stuff, you've got to remember that there, it's because of conduct and actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people. And they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore, says, say, say, therefore, say to the Israelites, it's a little hard to read at this distance. Therefore, to say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from the countries, and I will bring you back into your own land. Pretty good news so far. Let's keep going. I will sprinkle you clean sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. Say new heart. New heart. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Is that the end? think that it is. A whole new heart. That's the subject that I have today. And so you can kind of understand why pictures uh, or artwork about a heart transplant wouldn't be all that appetizing to have on screen on a Sunday morning, right? When I, when I looked up heart transplant, I got lots of pictures that you don't want to see ever, okay? <laughs> it's just, oh gosh, oh geez, change it, change it. But I began, as I read this passage, um, really pondering this metaphor of a heart transplant. God saying to his people, because of your actions, because of the things that you've done, your heart has literally turned to stone within you. It is not a heart that can love. It is not a heart that can relate to somebody else. It is selfish. It is hardened. It is, it is isolated, and it has left you alone in the world. And wherever you go, your heart of stone reflects not just on you, but on God himself, because because the punishment that you're enduring. And so God says to his people, not only am I going to bring you back to your land, not only am I going to bring you back to where you belong and the place that you belong, but I'm going to put a new heart within you. I'm going to give you a heart transplant. So I've been thinking about this metaphor of a heart transplant from Ezekiel 36, and, and I found a few things that I thought maybe would be actually really helpful for us to think about on an Easter Sunday when we talk about resurrection about what the reality of the cross is all about. We think about the cross as a, a symbol of God's wrath and God's punishment, but really this is the place where the heart transplant begins. The first thing that I thought about as I was pondering this heart transplant was this. The patient has got to be really, really sick, right? We don't just go around willy-nilly transplanting hearts. We're not, we're not coming to, to people and saying, well, you seem generally healthy, but you know what I think would do you some good? You need a new heart. So let's just put you on a table, cut you open, take it out, put a new one in. We don't do that. We reserve heart trance for people who are 
very, very sick. In fact, so sick that it's necessary to take their heart out and put somebody else's heart in there because if we don't, they're going to die, right? It's, it's not just for people who are a little bit sick, but this is people who are very sick. And when we look at the list of people who are on the heart transplant list, we, we see that, you know, sometimes people are on that heart transplant list because of things that they've done to themselves, right? Some of the very things that, that would keep our heart healthy, we've just given up on them. Some of the things that would destroy our heart, we've taken them on. We've done drugs. We've done alcohol. We've smoked for 40 years. We've, we've done all of these things that have weakened our heart. We stopped exercising in the third grade. How many of you stopped exercising in the third grade? Doug, maybe we need to pick that up so that you don't have to have a heart transplant. So these are people that have done things that have weakened or caused their heart to become so sick that they're going to die. And very often when we meet these people, people that haven't done those things feel judgment rise up in them, right? We start thinking, well, why should you get a new heart? You wrecked the last one all on your own. What, you did that to yourself. Why should you be on a list when there's other people out there that have genetic diseases that require it? And yet we still, as human beings, put people on this list, and we try to get them a new heart. We try to save their life. I know what it's like to have somebody in your life like that. My grandfather died of liver disease. He was an alcoholic most of his life, and he killed himself. He was on the liver transplant list and didn't get a liver in time. But he died because he had abused his body. It was his own fault that he was sick. And that's what's going on in this passage. The people of God were sick by their own behavior. By their own decisions and choices, they had become spiritually so sick that they were going to die. The scripture in verse 16 says, they defiled the land. They defiled their own hearts by their conduct and actions. And the specific symptoms they had going on were spilling of blood. They were killing people. And they were worshiping idols. Very specifically, they break the second or two of the Ten Commandments, right? Killing people and and worshiping idols, not having an only one God. Now, many people in that situation say, well, I didn't intend to worship an idol, or I didn't intend to kill people. I've never killed anybody in my life. And yet God accuses them of killing people by growing wealth on the backs of the poor, by ignoring the plight of the hungry and the sick, and by, by just focusing on themselves and becoming entirely self-centered and inwardly focused. The politics of the government and the greed of people built wealth with no regard to life. Wars were fought for land, for power. Lives were sent into war and to the, mill gr- the blood, bloody war grist just so that somebody could have uh, more land. They, they worshiped idols. And this isn't just a, a practice in religious intolerance. This isn't God being intolerant of other religions. He's being intolerant of the horrid, the abhorrent behavior of people worshiping these idols, sacrificing children, Practicing uh, ritual sexuality, um, temple prostitutes. It's worse and worse and worse. People were sick. And God was saying, this is about being faithful to me and faithful to your humanity. And you are hard-hearted. You've become like your idols of stone. Your heart is sick and you need a heart transplant. There was a sickness in the people, a bad sickness. And that sickness went straight to the core of who they were to the heart of the people, and it was infecting other people. And this land, these people were so sick, they were going to die, and they needed a heart transplant. So God knows, though, the second point is this, is that if you get a heart transplant, it gives you a whole new lease on life. A whole new life is possible. 
If you get on that list and you get the call, it's such good news because you know that suddenly you're going to have another 20, 30, 40 years to live. You know, we, we have this idea of bucket lists, all the things we want to do before we die. And when somebody gets to the point where they're on a heart transplant list, that bucket list becomes really intense, right? We want to get all the things done. We want to make sure that we, we get these things in before we die. We want to go to the World Series. We want to go see the Grand Canyon. We want to watch Sunrise from the top of the Empire State Building. I don't want to watch Sunrise from the entire state, Empire State Building. Maybe you do. Maybe Sunset but not sunrise, but sunrise from, you know, it's just the idea of these things that you do once in a lifetime and you want to make sure you get them done. And you realize that your heart is sick and you may not get a transplant. You are shortening your life. But when you actually get that call, suddenly you realize, well, really the important things can now happen. Instead of sunrise on top of the Empire State Building, I get to go to my son's graduation. I get to go to my daughter's wedding. I get to hold grandberries, grandbabies, not grandberries. <laughs> grandberries. Those are those blueberries that you get in the bottom of the container that are all shriveled. Those are grandberries. That's in my notes. I'm kidding. It's not. Um, so I get to hold my grandbabies and watch them go to sleep. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you get, the kind of life that's possible when you get a heart transplant. When you get a heart transplant from God, a whole new life is possible. It's a life connected to God. It's a life where enemies can become friends. It's a life where brokenness and mistakes of the past can be mended and all things can be made new. The Bible calls this new lease on life, new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And it's only possible with a new heart. But the people of Israel and many of us today, our hearts, again, have become hearts of stone. I remembered a story that I read a number of years ago about a woman who died. And when they did her autopsy, she was in her 80s when she died. They did her autopsy. Uh, uh, I can't say that word. They found inside of her, a, a in her womb, a baby that she had had when she was young that she didn't know she was pregnant. The baby died, and ne she never gave birth to the baby, and it ossified it turned to uh, bone inside of her. If you go to the edge of eastern Washington, over up against the mountains, there's this place called the Petrified Forest. It's where a whole forest was knocked down, and the, the, all the trees were turned to stone. They've become petrified. That's what's going on inside of our hearts. They're turning to bone. They're turning to stone, becoming hardened, and we need a heart transplant or the things that we hope and long for in life will never come true. The third thing that I noticed about a heart transplant as a metaphor is this, that you need a skilled surgeon. You need somebody who knows what they're doing, right? Hospitals are strange and funny places. So you go to your, your normal GP, right, your normal doctor. You say to him, I'm sick. He's like, okay. Now this guy's pretty much a stranger to you. You see him once a year. And you come in, and he looks at you naked. He touches places that nobody else gets to touch. He does things to you that nobody else gets to do, and this is a complete stranger. Then he says, yeah, you've really got a problem. Let me introduce you to this other stranger who's going to cut you open. And then you go see that guy, and, and they, they put you in a room. They say, take off all of your clothes. They put you on a bed. They wheel you into a room, and he says, I'd like to introduce you to this whole room full of strangers that we're going to cut you open today, Right? You have no idea how skilled these people are. You just have to trust that they've got DR for PhD or uh, MD. There's the one I'm looking for. 
Yeah. My doctor has CNN after his. I don't know what that means. But surgery's gone okay so far. So hospitals are really strange because we have these strangers that are highly skilled experts at doing things like surgeries. And the reason that we allow it to happen to us with strangers is because we trust their skill. We don't just want some random guy off the street performing heart surgery. You know, he's like, here, hold my sandwich. I've got this. And I'm going to do a scalpel and he's going to cut you open. I'm not asleep yet. We don't do that. We want somebody who is skilled. And we see here in this passage the most skilled physician ever. Not just the one who knows how to fix the problem, but one who knows how the problem was started and also who knows how you were created in the first place. And he says, I'll do it. I'll give you this heart transplant. Verse 24, I will take you out of the nations. Verse 24, I will gather you back and put all the pieces back together. Verse 25, I will cleanse you. Here, use this is antiseptic. I'm going to wash you clean. Verse 26, I will take your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And then in verse 26, in the end, he says, I will put a new spirit in you. The perfect physician is the one who is doing the heart transplant for us. The one who has not ever made a mistake in the entire history of all history and beyond says, I will give you a new heart. But with a heart transplant, here's the catch. Somebody has to die. This is more perhaps the most terrible part of an organ transplant, right? That there are very few procedures that are major like this that you could have where two people can live. You can, you can have some, one, of, one of somebody's kidneys, right? We say that's how, how you express how much you love somebody. I love you so much, I'd give you my kidney. Nobody said that? I don't know. I don't think I've ever actually said that, but I would for a few people, a few of you. Most of you, probably. <laughs> Jesus loves you, and I, would and I would give you a kidney. Or a liver, right? You can give somebody half of your liver. I don't know what it's like to live with half a liver, but you could do that, and both of you go on living. Bone marrow is another one. Life-saving treatment to give somebody bone marrow. Extremely painful. Never want to have to volunteer for this. But you can give bone marrow to somebody, and they can live. But a heart transplant, that is not the case. With a heart transplant, somebody has to die. Patients can be on a list for weeks and months and years waiting for somebody with the right blood type, the right genetic makeup. And what they're doing is they're sitting there waiting for somebody to die. Isn't that terrible? It might take some, some other sickness that a person gets. Maybe it's a, tra a traffic accident. But it is always a tragedy for somebody. When there is a heart transplant happening, there is one, ha one family who is joyful and happy because their friend or their loved one is going to live, but there is a family somewhere that is mourning the loss of their son or their daughter, their father or their mother. One person receives life, one person dies. And there's something awful about just waiting for somebody to die. And the waiting can go on for so long that the person waiting dies themselves. And that's exactly what was going on for the people in this story. They're sitting there with their hardened heart, scattered throughout the land. Their innards were scattered. Their, their hearts were scattered. They were just all the pieces were kind of come apart, and they're waiting. And for a hundred years, hundreds of years, I'm sorry, for at least 400 years from this prophecy, 
They're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for this moment when God would do what he said he would do, give them a heart transplant so that they could live. And it didn't happen until one Friday, about 2,000 years ago, when just the right person died on a cross, this picture, when just the right person was tragically and brutally beaten, abused, falsely accused, and tortured, and hung on a cross, and within him was the perfect heart, a heart that loved everybody, a heart that was generous, a heart that was kind, a heart that was deeply connected to God, and it was this heart that was given to us. Jesus chose this death. It wasn't some tragic accident like it would happen in a heart transplant in our day-to-day. It wasn't some random car accident. It wasn't some random disease, but it was a chosen death. As I read this story over the week, and I hope you did this too, the final week of Jesus' life, I noticed over and over again how much he knew what was coming. In the early in his ministry, it seems like he's not real clear on what's going to happen in the end. He's not 100% certain very, very early on that he's the Messiah. It seems like maybe he's growing in this knowledge of who he is and what God's made him to be. But this last week of his life, and you might even argue the most critical week of his life, he knew exactly what was going down. He says to his disciples, go ahead into the city and you'll find a donkey. That's Palm Sunday, right? He says, you're going to find a God, a guy with a donkey, a baby donkey, and I want you to bring him back to me. If he says, hey, why are you stealing my donkey? He says, the master needs it. Like he gives him perfect instructions for what's going to happen. And guess what happens? The disciples go ahead, they walk, and they find a guy. He's got a baby donkey. He's like, oh, what do you know? And they take the baby donkey. The guy's like, hey, what are you doing stealing my donkey? He says, the master needs it. He goes, oh, okay, go ahead, take it. And so he knew exactly what was going to happen. Later on, he says to the disciples, I want you to go ahead into the city, and you will see a man carrying a jar of water. That is kind of unusual, because I'm, I'm not, like, chauvinist this way at all. But in the Bible, that's just women's work, to carry the water in the Bible. So when you see a man carrying the, the, the jar of water, that stands out to you just a little bit. It's like a man wearing all neon green. You're like, whoa, what's going on there? He says, so go ahead, and you'll see a guy carrying a jar of water. And then you follow him to his house. And that's where we're going to eat the Passover meal. You tell them the master needs this house. He wants to eat here for Passover. And guess what happens? They find the man with the jar of water. They go to his house. They say, the master wants to hear. And that's where they have the Last Supper. At the Last Supper, he says, Peter's going to deny me three times. Peter's like, I've never denied you in my life. I would never deny you. I would kill people before I denied you. But guess what Peter does? Peter denies him three times. And then he says, that who I give this cup to will betray me into the hands of my enemies. And he hands the cup to Judas. And guess what Judas does? He betrays him. And then in the Garden of Eden, or not Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, (laughs) it's kind of interesting, the Bible begins in a garden, and this story kind of ends in a garden. He's in the garden, he's praying. He is submitting to God's will. And he says to God, I don't want to do this. (laughs) God, if if there's any other way, come on, you are God, You've got all the planning capabilities in the world. You've got all the options open to you. So if there's any other option than this to give these people a new heart, can we do that one instead? And when God says no, Jesus still goes forward, knowing exactly what's going to happen. Jesus willingly gave his life so that you and I might have a new heart and a new spirit placed within us. Paul said in Ephesians this way, but because of his great love, for us, not because of God's great anger, not because of God's great hatred towards sin, but because we desperately needed a heart transplant. 
because he loved us so much, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that we are saved. The confusion that a lot of people have about the cross is that they read it as Jesus being punished by God for our sins. The cross is not something that the, that the Father inflicts on the Son in order to forgive the world. Let me say that again. The cross is not something that the Father, God, inflicts on the Son in order to forgive the world. The cross is what God in Christ endures as he forgives the world. On the cross, Jesus does not save us from God. On the cross, Jesus reveals God as our Savior. He gives his life so that we can have a new heart. Is that not good news? But back to the heart transplant. When you receive that heart transplant, once you've come past the tragedy, you realize that something of that person that died lives on in you. That this new heart that you have beating inside of you, you may be a 48-year-old man, but you have the heart of a 20-year-old young woman. And that's something that the families of the people who die find very comforting. They often will go and try to meet the person that has the heart living within them. And they will hug and they become close and they love one another because something of their daughter, their husband, their, their father, their mother is living in this other person. It's the beauty of organ donation. And God says, I will put a new heart, a heart of flesh for your heart of stone into you. And as much of our disease has defined us before that transplant happened, this new heart, this new identity, this new life living within us defines our future and shapes our behaviors. What makes this heart transplant so unique is that the donor rose from the dead. <laughs> Unlike any other heart donor in the history of the world. And we now share a life with Christ. This is the heart of God and the spirit of Jesus alive in us. So resurrection becomes a really big deal on Easter because it's the launching of a whole new creation. Sin, sickness, disease, disordered thoughts, broken relationships, the thing of the old broken order are no longer the end of our story. We have a new heart within us. The reality of heart sickness, hearts of stones, is that when we get that transplant and we get this new life placed in us, it's not the end. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. This is what we are given on the cross. And this is what we are given in the resurrection. We die in our old selves and we come alive in Christ as he places his own heart and his own spirit to live within us. So my question for you this morning to ponder just for a minute, thinking about all of this metaphor about all the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. Let me ask you to just think for a minute, what's the state of your heart? What's it like in there? Are you carrying a heart of stone or a heart of flesh? Because we can become Christians and we can say, I give my life to Christ and never fully submit to the heart transplant. We can allow our heart of stone to, like the baby in the mother's womb, to become hardened and ossify, and eventually it will die with us. But God invites us to receive a new heart. So let's take a minute of silence and just 
contemplate. Let God speak to you. Don't feel convicted or, or don't feel condemned, I guess is what I would say. Don't feel guilty. Just be honest before God. What is the state of your heart this morning? This morning, I want to give the opportunity for anybody who might be here that looks at their life and just says, oh, yeah, I, I actually have the heart of stone. I mean, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The reality of what is inside of me is broken. It's broken relationships. It's hurt feelings. It's broken behaviors. It's addictions. It's, it's just anger. It's pride. It's hatred toward other people. There's these things that are going, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm anxious. I'm lonely. And my heart is just hardened and I'm isolated. I want to give you an opportunity to just say yes to a heart transplant. So would you all just bow your heads and close your eyes with me? This is just a moment of prayer. It's a holy moment. The Holy Spirit is present with us. This is the story of the Christian church. If you are in a place and you're just like, I, I need a new heart. I need the heart of God. I need the heart that lives, that hopes, that loves, that's generous, that's kind you're in that place and you say, God, I want to change my heart, would you transplant your heart into me? Would you just raise your hand and acknowledge that? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Father, I pray for those who've raised their hand this morning. Jesus, they receive you. Take their heart of stone and trade it for a heart of flesh. They receive your life. In Jesus' name. Now, for everybody else, still head bowed and eyes closed, as you looked at your heart, you thought, well, it's kind of a mixed bag in there. If you didn't say it's kind of a mixed bag in there, you probably missed something. Because I, too, have a mixed bag of a heart. There are places where my heart, of, my heart of stone has been replaced by a heart of flesh and a new spirit. And there are places that are still ossified in heart, and God is still doing a work in me. And if you're in a place where you're just like, God, there's this specific thing, there's this specific spot in my life that I, I just, I need a new heart here. I need your spirit to live in me. Would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. God, for all of us in this room, we need the ongoing work of your spirit. We need to continue to go to the doctor and meet with the doctor after our heart transplant to make sure that things are taking, to make sure that the heart isn't being rejected, to make sure that the disease isn't continuing to spread and allow you to continue to do your work with all the medications, with all the surgeries, whatever you need to do in us to make us like you and to put your heart and your spirit in us, God, we submit to you. We submit to you. In Jesus' name.